Good morning. Awesome. That works. Nice. Well, are you staying warm? Are you? That's good. It's cold out. That's for sure. I don't think we've had a good cold snap like this in a while. I can't remember. Seems like it usually happens when I'm leaving the country and my furnace is broken or something. So that's all right. Robin's tough. John and Nancy are in New Zealand visiting relatives, uh, Stephen for one day, and then uh, uh, Hobbit side of John's family. They're going to meet with those guys. So you got me for a couple of weeks. In a couple of weeks, we're going to tell you what you already know, and that's John's running the church, and I'm number two. So that'll be official the first... um, first week of next month. So, I mean, it's been official for about two years, three years, four years. So, um, and uh, I'm not going anywhere. You still are going to have to put up with me. I'm just not preaching all the time, and it's not my fault. Those two things are the big things that are on my list, you know. So, if you got a problem, call John. You're mad at somebody, call John mad at me, call John. And H? Yeah. He's Canadian. What can we do? That's just a Dutch, Dutch Canadian. You know about the Dutch, don't you? You can always, you can always tell the Dutch, but you can't tell them much. So... Right? (laughs) Nope. Uh, It's good. He's doing a great job. And, uh, uh, man, he's firing all cylinders. And he's way younger than I am. And I love we chat on the phone or meet a couple times a week and have a good time talking about it. And I get my orders. And then I let him take the fall. So here we go. That's good. So he uh, came in last week and... Uh, begin to kick off this uh, little bit of a series, uh, and I can't remember all the points, but I'm doing two of them, which I know, I forgot the third one, I'm, we're going to talk about the Word today, and then uh, uh, worship next week, and I'm going to kind of take it a little bit different angle, uh, And I'm, but I want to go back to Jeremiah 29. I like this dialogue about exile, about being in exile. Uh, I, I'm, I like to talk, I like, I like the process of thinking, all right, if exile is a good concept to help us understand where we really are living. We do have a, a, a process of thinking through kingdom theology. I like what, um, there's a guy, a theologian, who was at Fuller Seminary for years, a New Testament theologian, that talked about the now and coming kingdom. The kingdom came when Christ came, but it's not fully realized in the restoration of where we live. But it lays a foundation to talk about the fact that being a follower of Jesus isn't just about um, getting forgiven and and being rescued from hell. It's about the reestablishing of the kingdom of God after 
Uh, it was lost through rebellion in various ways. And he has given us an opportunity to not only be transformed in our brokenness, but to be a part of that kingdom and to live in that kingdom. And uh, I'm reading Revelation quite a bit lately, uh, and it, it all wraps up in the reestablishment of the, the new Jerusalem, which is symbolic of, of the realities of God being established on earth Again, like he came before in, in the book of Genesis, it was established. We read about it in there. But just Jeremiah 29 really talks about this thing that, we're, that we are in this process of really not living in perfection. We're really not living in paradise. And John talked about that last week. This isn't paradise. There's a lot of things. We, like, we spend a lot of time trying to make it paradise, and the trick is to try to keep things in its, their proper order, obedience and following of the king and letting other people be broken and giving them hope and those kinds of dialogue and recognizing that there is a final conclusion. It's not done yet. And we don't really understand the realities of how that end times is going to play out, but it will play out. Uh, several books that I've read have talked about the fact that the book of Revelation is a comfort to us. That's what it was meant to be done. You know, it was meant to come into our lives and say, look, God is under control. The, the, he's going to deal with this in the heavenly places, which is going to pan out in uh, settling what is, you know, the, how the kingdom is going to be established. If you want to read some of those, you can. Uh, I'm not saying that there won't be um, rough times. I'm not saying any of those things. But it really, the revelation means that this is a revelation of who Jesus is and what he's doing. And the, the book uh, is a sudden picture of things we couldn't see within our own ability. We need to be able to see it in the Spirit. The interesting thing about that book, I'll get to it, is John was living in exile when he received that vision okay, of how it was going to work out. He and a few other guys were living on an island. But this first scripture, I'll just read this, says, Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This was after King, whatever that guy, uh, Queen, uh, King Jehoiachin, I guess, the queen mother, just say it like you know what it is. The court officials, the other officials of Judah, and all the craftsmen and artisans, artisans had been uh, deported from Jerusalem. So we're, t we're looking at a situation where uh, Babylon came in. They just pulled everybody out that was really could be useful to them to make their economy better, to make their life better. They do that. That's one reason. The other reason is they want to blend that blood into theirs so that that nation ceases to exist. The people that were left behind are poor, old, weirdly religious, like Jeremiah, all those kinds of things. So Jeremiah, being the pastor, prophet of this group of people, is sending a letter to the people that ended up being uh, taken in to uh, Babylon. So it goes on to say that. And it said he sent the letter with some people who were going to Babylon to be the king's ambassadors to Nebuchadnezzar, to be able to communicate. So he sent that letter, and he, and he said this in the letter. He said, this is what the Lord of heaven's 
Uh, this is what the Lord of Heaven's army, the God of Israel, says to all the captives that have been exiled in Babylon uh, from Jerusalem. He said, build homes, plan to stay, plant gardens, and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children, find spouses for them, so that you may have grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away. So be, be productive, be fruitful. But it's also saying, don't blend in. Don't disappear into this culture. You're, the significance of who you are as followers of God is important. Now, this isn't a race, anti-race kind of dialogue we're having here. It's just saying recognize that who you are individually and corporately, and it can translate to us, is important. God's got a plan. So don't forget that. Don't leave that alone. Continue to cultivate that process. And then it goes on to say, verse 7, the work, uh, And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I send you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. For its, uh, pray for the Lord for it. For its welfare will determine your welfare. So don't speak bad about it. Don't speak curses against it. You can stand against the demonic entity, the satanic forces, but pray that it will be recognized that your presence brings blessing to this place. And you will prosper also. And, go, and it goes on to say, if you read the remainder of that chapter, and I'm not going to do that today, and John gave you all of this scripture last week, that, hey, stuff's getting restored, right? This is all prophesied or written by Jeremiah to these people with a backdrop of this isn't how it's going to end. See, I'm in the works. I'm in the process. I have... Actually, the scripture says, I have sent you to exile, basically, for a reason. And sometimes we have a hard time with that. We have a hard time with that. We fight against that. Well, I don't want to be here in exile. Well, of course not. I want to be where I want to be. But the reality is that sometimes we fight against the things that God's doing to either protect us or develop us, make us better, prosper, whatever it is that he wants to do. So anyway, there is an exile at times, and there is a promise in exile. So if we're in exile, we're here with promise, right? We know Jesus. We're here with promise. Say that to somebody next to you. We're here with promise. We're here with promise. Just say it out loud. You can do it. I know you can. I hear some of you guys talking all the time while I'm up here. So I know you can make noise. We're here with promise. All right? Now, going back to Revelation, again, I'm just telling you the stuff I'm praying about and thinking about. This is uh, John. It's been assumed for a long time it was the same John who wrote the book of John and 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, but we don't, we don't really know that. And I'm okay with that. I'm comfortable with that. I fight the Western reality of the, of the, the you know, really has messed us all up that we have to know everything and be right. You know, we can still have faith in God even if we don't, can't nail it all down, all right? So whoever wrote this piece of literature, an apocalyptic literature, which doesn't necessarily mean it's the end of time. It just means apocalyptic is just something like a sudden revelation, right? It would be like if you're going to the theater, a live theater with an orchestra and singers and actors, and you're all inside the, you know, seating of the deal, and there's kind of that murmuring going on. All of a sudden, the lights go down, right? And then all of a sudden, 
the curt come, curtain comes up, and sometimes the man, little baby, whoosh, you know, and the place is full of light, and the orchestra strikes up, and someone's singing, and actors are rushing in. You know, a moment before that, you had no idea what was going on. And then in a few seconds, that curtain is up. And that's what, that's, that's an apocalyptic action right there. That's saying, you didn't see this, and now I'm revealing it to you, and it's loud, and it's joyful, and it's full, and all that kind of stuff. And so John's writing what he saw. He had that event. He, all of a sudden, in this place of exile, got this this picture, this apocalyptic revelation of who Jesus was and how he is processing through ridding the earth of evil and bringing the kingdom of God in fullness, and it's to be a comforting picture to us. Let me show you. It really isn't designed, although we can diddle with it, but it wasn't primarily designed to say this is the order of how it happens. We who have been Christians since... Christians since the 70s, you know, we were taught, you know, well, are you Amil or pre-trib or, you know, all these kinds of things. And that's not necessarily the way that happens. That's not a a Jewish Christian understanding of what an apocalyptic picture is. It was a letter of comfort. And the guys that he's writing this to were having a hard time hanging on. Things were going poorly for them. They were thinking maybe Jesus should have had it all wrapped up by now, and he didn't. And God said, I'm going to show you, John, this thing that I want you to write down in a book and, and reveal to these people that, it, that I'm, I'm on it. The plan is happening. You don't necessarily need to be figured out, you know, have it all figured out so you know what day it is and where to live and what you know, kind of precious metal to buy or whatever that is, you know, all the things that we get involved with. And if you want to do that, go. God bless you. I'm not going to say that's wrong because I, I don't want to be responsible for that in any way, shape, or form. But the reality is saying it's going to happen. Don't give up. I'm involved. You can trust me. Have peace in this. When you see that there are crazy wars going on in the world around you, and, and there have been uh, plagues that have come through, and all this stuff has happened. Know this, that it's going to be dealt with. It's going to be made right, and Jesus is going to rule and reign. Have peace. Know me. Don't worry about when it's going to happen. Just look to me. So John's writing, he's, he's starting, he's read some stuff, wrote some stuff about Jesus. In verse 9, he comes up and says, I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance, right? Patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. Be patient. May not happen in your lifetime. Obviously, it hasn't happened in a lot of people's lifetime. Be patient. Know Jesus. Follow him. Trust him. I was exiled to the Isle of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. He bothered them. Bothered them, and they sent him away. They got him out of the way. They put him in a place where he's all by himself. The great thing about being exiled is you have plenty of time to spend with Jesus. 
And sometimes that has to happen to us. Some of our people are kind of Paulish or Peterish or whatever. We just get loud and busy and noisy all the time. And sometimes Paul just sets, or I mean, God just sets those Pauls and, and Peters and us down. I want you to sit and hear and listen and know me. That's hard for us. That is not a Western worldview thing to be not active and to wait and to hear God. It was the Lord's Day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. Next week's topic, important. Not that you are worshiping in a way that just gives you a good experience, but in a a worshiping way that says, God is God and I'm not. And I'm acknowledging him and submitting to him everything. That's why we get together at church and we worship together because for an hour we're making a statement that nothing is more important than the Lordship of Christ. That's why we have a few minutes every day in the Word of God or praying or worshiping home. There's nothing more important right now in these moments than the fact that Jesus is Lord. And I'm going to be... And that's, that's what just John was doing, see? He was in that place. And we could be in that place too, remember that. Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. That's, that's some loud talking. God can be a loud talker. Jesus can be a loud talker. The Holy Spirit can be a great amplifier. It said, write in a book everything you see, and I will send it to the seven churches in, the, uh, in Turkey, which is pretty Muslim right now. But I'm going to send it to these seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then he began to speak to them about, hey, you know, while you are waiting... You've kind of been given up a little bit here in this area. I mean, I'm glad you're doing this one. There was one church, I think, two, two churches maybe that didn't get a negative, you, gotta do, you know, you need to work on this. And I think there might have been one that didn't really get anything positive. I can't remember. I'd have to read them all again. But they're saying, look, I want you to be with me, and I want you to be living in this, this revelation, this uh, apocalypse discipleship that prepares you to be shaped to live with me. And one author I read, one theologian, is saying, this is, Revelation is a book about being discipled to be with Jesus forever. See? That's what we're saying. That's, that's an important thing to do. But remember, if you, are, if you are struggling with something in your life, remember, John in the first part of this book, is on Patmos. He is on exile. Are you, you know, if you're in a job that, you know, everyone there is just a foul-mouthed non-worshipper of Jesus, you can still hear from God there. If you are isolated from family, you can still hear from God there. If you're struggling with your own issues and shortcomings, which I am on a continual basis, you can still hear God there in that place of exile. If we are in a place that governments around us are not, are not 
you know, reflecting the glory of God in any way, you know, or very little ways, we can live in that place of exile and still hear Jesus speak to us like a voice of a trumpet. It still can happen. There is still promise. There is still the process of promise. Now that is, I think, the beginning of a definition of the Word of God. When we talk about the Word of God, we think about something maybe Jesus said or we think about the Bible. And in this vision, if you go on to read it in verses 15 and 16, it talks about the logos, the Word, is like a two-edged sword sticking out of Jesus' mouth. What he says is the Word. Now, maybe we wrote it down in some places. Maybe we've written down the experiences of people living, trying to live the Word of God. We call that the Bible. I don't, I don't doubt. I don't doubt that that is the perfect Word of God. I know that in those scriptures, I know that in the literature of those scriptures, the grammar of those scriptures, there are several timelines that are out of order. I know that the uh, in Luke and in Matthew, in the very first chapters, the genealogies don't always fit perfectly. I know that some of the stories seem a little crazy. I know that some of the ideas don't seem to synchronize at times, those kinds of things. I would even go far to say that the written part of my Bible isn't perfect. But it's still the perfect Word of God. It's not God's fault, necessarily. We don't understand the cultural settings. We don't understand what was said, when, how, and why. We don't know what has been edited a little down the road. All those kinds of things. But that does not mean it is not the Word of God. It does not mean, this is what a theologian that I enjoy says, it does not mean that this is not the Bible God wants us to have. We live in this Western world that, what was that thing that happened in France a bunch of years ago? What was that called, that, that cultural revolution? That, um, really? You don't know what that's called? I can't remember. Somebody knows. Renaissance. We have a Renaissance impact upon our Western culture. Thank you. Whew. I know stuff. I just can't remember it. It's the beginning of the end. That kind of renaissance thing, which kind of said God is dead, has infected, affected our, under, our Western culture. We live with a Western culture that says it's got to be perfect. I've got to completely understand it. And if I completely finally figure it out and understand it and you disagree with me, I'm right and you're wrong. That's not, that's not a Middle Eastern cultural understanding where the Bible was written. The Bible was written, the Word of God was written in a way that says we're going to struggle together 
to try to understand that and listen and hear it and do it. See, John Stott says that when we run into a huge biblical problem that seems to crash against our understanding of what is valuable in life, we don't just throw it out. We struggle. We fight to recognize that God is beyond us in our ability to understand and even imagine what he was trying to say. We can't give up. There's, I don't know how many denominational and sub-sect movements in the Western world that fight against each other, that have radical differences, that does not negate <clears throat> the Word of God. Honey, can you get some water for me? Let's see who stands up when I say that. Mm. That's good. I, get, I still got a place to live. The Word of God is Jesus. God with us is the Word of God. And it started out <clears throat> in pre-Christian culture and history that God dwelt in tabernacles and temples. And when those were destroyed, Torahs, the word was carried around, and that became the reality of where God was. When we get together, we examine what this word says. And then Jesus came on the scene. There should be kind of a little drawing up here that's, I'm not going to say it's theology, but it's just for the point of this quick dialogue, okay? Jesus came on the scene, and he fulfilled the Torah, the law. And not only did he fulfill the Torah, thank you, honey. He not only fulfilled it, but by him and through him, we were able to have and entertain the presence of God in our midst and amongst us. Some will even go as far as to say, and I agree with them, that it's not, and this is again, a, this is that problem of, with Western culture. This is not an individual thing. I mean, we, we are individually responsible, but God dwells in his church. We're, we are now his tabernacle, his temple, his, his law, not in a weaponized way or a police force kind of way. The fulfillment of that law here on this planet, the word of God dwells within us. And when we begin to understand that Jesus is the word, then we can understand the written word. There's a logos word, which Jesus is a logos word. There's a rhema word, which is a spiritual definition of the word. And that is in Jesus and in the Bible too. If we take the Bible without pursuing it to know Jesus, then it becomes just a legalistic roadmap that takes us down dead ends a lot of times. I'm not saying that ethics and Morality related to the Word of God is not important. I'm just saying there's no life in it without Jesus. It's just death. That's what we know from the, that's what we know from the Scripture, that the law 
brings death. The law shows us how far we've fallen from Jesus, but you cannot fulfill the law. Although we try so much, we become depressed, we become um, dis- disappointed with ourselves and each other when we can't. Only Jesus can fulfill the law. So the Torah is fulfilled in Jesus, and now we can know who God is. We can walk with him. Sure, we stumble, we bumble, we fall, we make a mistake, we do bad things. But his grace exists in that word. His grace to forgive us when our heart is in pursuit of him, right? Remember that dialogue? David talks about that, about King David. He had a heart after God. When our heart is after God, to sit even in exile and pursue him and let him give us that big, huge, bombastic revelation of who he is and what he's doing, see? We can be fulfilled with his presence. I like John 1, 1, because it, it kind of speaks us out. It kind of says, it kind of realizes, it reflects Genesis, and it reflects this reality that God is now present amongst us through Jesus. In the beginning, the Word already existed. Now, that word, word there is not meaning the Bible existed. It meant that Jesus existed. And the word logos was used in that scripture because not because it was a spiritual world, but because to the Greeks it meant something. In the beginning, the understanding and purpose and knowledge of everything with perfection and peace and completeness and grace was there. The complete picture was there in Jesus. He has been there forever. That's what the Lagos meant to the Greeks. And we're going to go a little shorter because my throat's drying out so that you lucked out. It says the Word was with God and the Word was God. So this, is, this expands our picture. <clears throat> it already existed. He was God He was perfect. He was everything. There was nothing else needed in knowledge, physics. I didn't mean to say physics, but that's fine. Uh, In, you know, every aspect of life, it's all there. It always has been there. It's not something new. You don't have to go find it. He existed in the beginning with God, and God created everything through that, through him, through that logos, in that process. Now, some of you don't agree with me. I don't, I don't care. I, I, I'm probably wrong, but I, I think I'm, I'm good with God being a creator and, and science discovering how he did it. I'm good with that. I don't have a problem with that. I, I think that's fine. Maybe because I kind of like science, even though I can't do math. I don't know. You know, may, that might be it. But, I mean, I, I think there's room for both of those things. I don't think it had to happen in a short time. It could happen at any time that it needed to happen. 
and God would still be God. And if you believe something different, I'm not going to fight you on it. I don't, I don't have a problem. You could be right. I don't know. I'm not God, right? God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. And the word gave life to everything that was created. Right? Breath. The pneuma, the spirit, the Holy Spirit. These are all multidimensional manifestations of who God is that we don't have enough days here this morning to pick every little piece of this scripture apart. I mean, this is, this is incredible. We are not alone. We're not, we're not even with a bunch of gods or people who don't care. We are, we are with a God who has always been there and created everything and cares and understands and loves beyond any sense of expectation and understanding that we could come up with, and the enemy wants to chisel at us to limit that. Did I read verse 4? The Word gave life to everything and was created. Uh, Yep, okay. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. And then John, it says that he came to live amongst us, right? Which literally could be translated into what? He came and set up his tent in our backyard. God came. He got behind our walls. He got behind our sin. He got away. He got, and he got close to us, and he decided to come live in a tent wherever we live, essentially. That's the spirit of that statement. He's here. It's not an accident that he's here. He decided to be here. And these two words, logos and rhema, define the interaction of the word being Jesus in whatever we have written that we can carry around that helps us to understand who Jesus is. See? The word helps us. The Bible helps us to know Jesus. And that's the goal. It's not for us to know a bunch of things and be able to do a bunch of things. That's the fruit of knowing God. The goal is to know God and let him be known, to experience his love and his presence. And we're to live a life that is a word-filled and shaped life. We're to live that life with Jesus. Jesus will do that. I like <clears throat> Eugene Peterson's translation in the word of Romans 12, the first two verses. And this is really a hub scripture for me, period, um, because it, it just really talks about let Jesus change what you envision in your mind. Let you be transformed in worship, that you see things in a kingdom way. That's really the spirit of this scripture. Spend time with Jesus. Have that revelatory experience like John in Revelation did. Have that word come into your life in that way that it just totally, remarkably changes you. And don't let the culture that you're exiled in totally dominate that. Let that 
define where you live. And, and, then, and then we have to live here, right? And I like this Eugene Peterson way of saying it. So he says this. So here's what I want you to do. And this is written probably more, you know, the, the Bible was not really a formal book. It was like a, it was kind of like, a, you know, people getting together and talking. You know, it uses that kind of literature. It was the real true usage of Greek at that time. I, I know I do this a lot. Just don't worry about that. But the true understanding of how Greek was used in the time that the Bible was translated, especially the New Testament, was discovered in a set of notes in a garbage dump, an ancient garbage dump. And it had in there, not only did it have biblical text, but it had grocery lists. And it had, you know, notes that were written to you know, people that live next door and those kinds of things. And they were very casual notes. It would be like the same kind of vernacular that you would use to write your grocery list or to describe to your neighbor that how you need your dog fed or something like that. There was no, thus saith the Lord, in, you know, in big King Jamesy words. It was just this down-to-earth radical stuff. And that's what Peterson is basing the understanding of his message translation is the is let's get it in this this kind of form. So here's what I want you to do. As he starts it out. God helping you. Here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Offer yourself up as a living sacrifice. You know, see, that's, that's, that, that's the translation of that particular scripture. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Okay? That's the best thing to do to make him happy. I mean, a lot of us in this room have ideas of what we need to do to make God happy. Probably not right. Probably just making up stuff in your head because it's easier for you to control what you think you should do rather than to trust God. Got to find myself. Are you guys wishing John was back yet? You're all right? Okay, all right. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture, your exiled culture that you live in. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Whew. That's a, I should read that every day right there. That's a, that's a hard one. Instead, fix your attention on God. Now we're talking about John Patmos worshiping on the Lord's day. We're heading in that direction when we read that kind of thing. Fix your attention on God. Recognize that He is the priority, and you take and you do that by taking moments to do it. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, 
always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. I mean, you know, this comes back to the only message that I really have. Hear God and do it. Maybe we could update that, to hear God and live it. Pursue God, hear him, and live it. Take time to pursue God and hear him and then live it. And then the scripture even takes it another step. It talks about if you are a follower of Jesus, be filled with the Spirit, which means you will be animated by the Spirit. Not only will we hear God, but he gives us gas to put in our spiritual tank or whatever your thing is, Powerade or, you know. Not only will he tell us what to do, he will fuel us by the power of the Spirit, animated, animated by the Holy Spirit. Amen? I love that. That lo- I love that, man. That just, that just helps me so much. Why don't you guys stand up? Have the rock and roll team come up. I'm just going to pray with you. So, ooh, I went 15 minutes and 43 seconds over. Just telling you, I'm not taking that off of next week. But it is only 11.09. And some of you didn't get here till 10.15. So, if you're going to come late, I'm going to go long. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Put your hand on your heart. Is there anybody? Uh, you don't have enough hands. Never mind. I'm going to ask you to do something that was going to require a foot or something, I guess. Thank you, Jesus. But just put that over your heart, Lord Jesus. I want to take my exiled life and turn it into a revelation of you in the midst of it by stopping for you. I want to hear your voice, know the peace and hope and the reality of knowing where you are going and go where you tell me to go. And I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit that animates me to do that. In the name of Jesus, I pray for these folks. Bless them in that realm. They go out, Lord, as they're struggling in their walk around, go to work, whatever that life, that stuff that Eugene talked about, whatever it is, their good things, the bad things, the lies that get spoken in their head, the lies that get spoken into their face. Lord Jesus, I pray right now that your light of your presence, your apocalyptic revelation of who you are would suddenly come upon them and bless them, Lord, as they walk around, and that you would animate them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Can you give us a little... Did I say Trevor? Or did I say band? Yeah, good. Because you're not Trevor. Give us a little nice... We love Jesus, and he's awesome, and then let's go home. And let's go do this. All right.
You heard that? Slap that bass. I want to hear some bass notes. It's all about that bass. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.